I'm sitting here today with Deborah Larson, and today's date is February 17th, 2017. I had to think about that. Mm -hmm. Friday. So, Deb, I'd like to thank you again for meeting with us. My pleasure. Yeah. So the first question I like to ask everybody is, why did you become a PT? I don't think I'm that different from many uh, that started out. I read a book called Christie uh, uh, when I was early high school, and it was about a PT working with a young girl with cerebral palsy, and I thought, oh, that seems very interesting. I'd done some time as a candy striper. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and uh, I decided I didn't, I didn't want to be a nurse because I don't like needles or tubes and where they go. So um, those two things together made me start uh, thinking about an alternate healthcare path. And I volunteered at the Children's Hospital in Dayton and mm -hmm. fell in love with that. I volunteered at um, one of the acute care hospitals as well. I never liked that quite as much as I liked the children's hospital. So surprisingly, I went to PT to be a pediatric PT. So was that your first job? No. Someone gave me ill-advised uh, <laughs> advice. Um, somebody told me that you had to take your first job in a general practice setting, preferably acute care. And I did that. I lasted 11 months. I applied for and talked my way into a job where I was the sole pediatric therapist in a large hospital in Toledo. And um, it was just an amazing learning situation. I, um, this was 1979, and mm -hmm. I was in the NICU, and I was doing rehab, and I was doing a cerebral palsy clinic, and a myelomeningocele clinic, and um, just so many different opportunities to learn and expand my skills. So I, I understand your current research is on neural reorganization. Mm -hmm. So what are you working on now? Well, I sort of alluded to that. Um, the we have a project that's looking at the non-motor influences on motor recovery. That's right. Um, so uh, both sensory dysfunction and uh, cognitive dysfunction and so we're trying to you know we I'm really fascinated by the, sort of the responder non-responder differences and um, we tend to look in most clinical trials at the group effect right mm -hmm. and it's really nice when the group effect is robust and we can say this works but in every kind of treatment, we have a lot of variability in the outcome of the treatment. And as PTs, what we focus on is 
what we can see, the motor dysfunction or deficit. And I have become intrigued with what else contributes to that deficit. And so I'm right now targeting sensory and cognitive changes, both of which are underdiagnosed and undertreated. So most PTs will do sort of a, can you feel this? Can you feel mm-hmm. that kind of sensory evaluation? Or maybe if we're really good, we do a sharp, dull look. We might look at uh, proprioception a little bit in terms of if is your finger up, is your finger down? Can you put your arm in the same position? I've put your other arm, those kind of simple tests. But we often don't test uh, stereoagnosis, haptics, our ability to use the hand as an object to gain sensory information. And that is uh, disrupted in almost 80% or sometimes greater of the patients that we look at. Even in a stroke situation on their intact side? It's often bilateral. Hmm. Uh, The more severe the deficit, the more likely it is to be bilateral. And in those same folks, and this is where it gets a little complicated, uh, they often have a cognitive deficit as well, if you do the kinds of testing that we're doing. So part of it is, is this all just a working memory deficit? Because the centers that control working memory are centers connecting the parietal lobe to the frontal lobe, and the centers that are active in our sensory discrimination tasks are the parietal lobe and the frontal lobe, same areas. So it's what we're seeing, and if you think about how we look at haptics or stereognosis, we we give them something in their hand, mm-hmm. right? And then we ask them to pick out what it is or to find it with their other hand or something. So they have to sort of remember what they felt. And so is that a, an attention, a working memory deficit? Um, so we're looking at the brain areas that seem to be active. Are they the exact same areas? We're also looking at the white matter connections between those brain areas. So the superior longitudinal fasciculus, (laughs) remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well now it has three parts and it connects slightly different parietal areas to frontal areas. Is it differentially damaged in those that have more of a kinesthetic loss versus a working memory loss? versus uh, sensory discrimination loss. Can we kind of pick that apart? So that's where we are right now, is looking at white matter projections connecting the parietal and frontal lobes and how that contributes to these non-motor deficits that we see post-stroke. So what are you using to assess that? We're doing diffusion tractography Mm -hmm. and um, using probabilistic tractography that allows us to uh, estimate the best projectional, um, the way the fibers are projecting from very specific areas in the parietal lobe to very specific areas in the frontal lobe. Because if you look at the super longitudinal fasciculus in its entirety, 
you're probably losing some of the fine points hmm. of what's actually happening. And so if you think about where that's going in a in our most our middle cerebral artery stroke, the cause of hemiparesis, those fibers are are likely to be affected. But since they course through sort of different brain areas, they may not be affected the same way. They may be differentially affected. So mm-hmm. that's sort of what we're trying to look at. Very neat. I like it. It's keeping me busy. There you go. So let's talk about your leadership. Um, I've, I've got to tell you that a lot of people have been very complimentary about your leadership um, style and that you have a gift at letting people do what they need to do to achieve their goals. So when I went back through and looked at everything the section has accomplished in the past, what is it, seven years now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. So I'm going to let you pick your favorite first. So what what thing has the section done that you have um, felt really proud of or thought was a game changer? Well, I am really proud that we changed our name. Why is that? So no one understands what a section is. When you talk to your colleagues around the country and you say, I'm a member, or I'm president of the neurosection, they look at you with a blank look on your face and they say, well, what's a section? Mm-hmm. When you say, I'm the, I'm the president of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, it rings a common bell with those around the country, especially our medical colleagues, that they are all part of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons or whatever, that they understand the term academy. And so I, I felt like it was an important change for us to make and to get rid of this confusion that our colleagues had about who we were. So I am really glad that we did that. And it obviously wasn't my idea. It came out of the governance review of the APTA, but I felt like we moved it through at a, at a really good pace and with excellent support from the membership. So I, I think we did it in the right way. Very good. Um, what, the first thing I put down was actually holding four-step. And I that know that would have been two. Okay, <laughs> the the step conferences. I read your um, article about your um, the career, influence, yeah. yeah, career, and the and the influence the step conferences mm-hmm. had on you as a um, an academic. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us the short version of that. Oh sure, um, I was uh, a child during first step, but I know that my academic program was very much influenced by the neurophysiological concepts of the first step conference. And I think there's probably not a practicing PT that wasn't, their education didn't change as a result of that first step conference. I missed the two step conference by about two years in terms of being an academic, Mm -hmm. but I lived by that compendium. I mean, that just opened my mind. I had studied motor learning and motor control as part of my doctorate, 
and I was already very much interested in those principles as they applied to neurologic conditions. But two-step really, really pushed that forward. And so I taught from that. I developed an entire class based on that compendium. I started my, I mean, it really changed my research career where when I thought about what I really should be doing in, in relation to the profession, I thought we have got to understand how motor learning and motor control principles should influence recovery. And so uh, I just, two-step had such an impact. Three-step, for me, if you take one term from three-step was neuroplasticity. How do we look at the brain and know how it's changing in relation to what we're doing? And I, we wrote our first um, paper on imaging in fMRI in um, 2002, so before three-step. But it was first a confirmation that we were on the right track. And three, or secondly, it showed me that what other people were already doing. And I felt like this push to just move forward to, to figure out those other things. So finally, what do you see the next big change in physical therapy? Well, I could say, say what I'd like to see is the next big change in physical therapy. And I talked to some other people um, about this. I think we need to um, be much more involved in primary care. And... You know, we have fought being employed by physicians in, a, in POP situations, and I totally agree with that. But I do believe we could be partners, and that when a patient calls an office and they say, I'm having this problem, I'm dizzy, for example, why are they going to their GP for, I mean, maybe they need to go to that medical doctor to make sure they don't have an inner ear infection, maybe. My guess is they could go to a PA or a nurse practitioner for that part of the evaluation, but why aren't they also seeing a PT at the same time? Why is it always a two or three step process? And we are equipped for many conditions to be the primary care specialist and not to be a referral. And we need to figure out how to be part of the primary care environment. So I, I had hoped I would see more of that as we went to the DPT. And maybe we've seen a little bit, but not nearly what we thought. And I think we have to look especially as we're changing healthcare, we have to look at how the BT becomes part of primary care. And then for our patients that are living with chronic neurologic conditions, it should make as much sense for them to see their PT on an annual or 
quarterly basis when they have a diagnosis of Parkinson's or post-stroke or TBI or cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. that we should be part of that ongoing health care and begin to manage this secondary problems of these conditions. And then again, I think that as I'm talking about primary care, I'm also talking about a much larger role in prevention, both the prevention of conditions, neurologic conditions, and prevention of secondary consequences. And some of the nice things that came out in four step are what happens when if you do exercise in patients that are diagnosed with Parkinson's but have minimal physical deficits. And the reality is you can change the course. I think you can change the course of the disease if you do it early and not wait until they really need you. And I think that's where we need to, that that prevention part we need to jump into. Because there are other health practitioners that if we don't do it, they will do it and they won't do it as well. This concludes the shortened version of the interview with Deb Larson. Download the full interview to learn more about her process of obtaining a PhD, as well as her work on the Excite trials. Thank you for listening.